0: Hello and welcome to The Word is Out, a mission-centric podcast featuring Dr. Alan Meenan, pastor and preacher and teacher of God's Word for over 40 years, and now the founder and faithful leader of a missions organization that reaches out to the world with the Word of God. The last book we studied was Ezekiel, a rather challenging read through some serious judgment, a call to fearless obedience, and the ultimate result of bringing glory to God. If you have not yet heard that one, I urge you to have a listen. Now we embark on a new series of podcasts about the Pentateuch. Before we launch into the book of Exodus, Alan, tell me why we should read these five books. They are challenging. Hi, Kep, it's good to hear you again. The, f-
1: the first five books of the Bible, of course, are um, known also as the books of Moses. They're basically the books that introduce us to God, hmm. uh, introduce us to his character, introduce us to a knowledge of who he is both in terms of uh, his creation, in terms of his redemption, uh, in terms of his covenant relationship with his people. So it lays the foundation for the entire revelation of God, if you will. Hmm. So these books basically are foundational. They basically lay the basis of, of our understanding. They introduce us to the God of the Bible, and that's why it's really important to, to read and study them.
0: Well, we've, we've already gone through Genesis, so be sure if you haven't listened to that podcast, be sure to listen to that one. And now we're going to jump into Exodus. I understand that you have a special interest in the book of Exodus. Tell us about that.
1: I, I do. I do have a special interest in Exodus. It was um, in the book of Exodus that I, I worked on my PhD thesis for three years. In fact, uh, one particular aspect of the book, the uh, 32nd chapter the golden calf i actually spent 3 years studying that chapter i remember we were newly wed at the time and when i came home one day from uh, from the university of edinburgh my wife asked me you know what did i do all day and i told her i was trying to figure out the composition of the golden calf whether it was gold or wood overlaid with gold or whatever <laughs> <laughs> and and she said basically who cares <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of interesting. But, but I find the book of Exodus fascinating because there's really, even though most people think there's one Exodus event in it, I would argue that there are actually two Exodus events. Mm. And the great climax of the book is the descent of the glory of God upon, upon his people. It's also known as the Gospel of the Old Testament. So Exodus is really a magnificent, fascinating, uh, wonderful book to, uh, to study. So yes, I do have a special interest in it.
0: We tend to think of the gospel as just something relevant to the New Testament. Um, Good news, why gospel, in what sense do you call it a gospel? Well, I
1: mean, that's a great question. First of all, yes, it's good news. And second of all is the gospels of the New Testament speak of the life of Christ and the deliverance that he brings, the salvation that he brings. And in the same manner, uh, Exodus is a book about deliverance. It is, in, in, in a very real sense, a precursor to our deliverance in Christ. The first 12 mm. chapters tells us the amazing story of the people's exodus from Egypt. But the real highlight lies in the culmination at the end of the book, when the glory falls uh, upon the tabernacle and the presence of God comes to dwell with his people. And we would say that, you know, God with his people, that's, that's the word Emmanuel, God with us. Mm. Um, which is the essence of the, go- of the Gospels of the New Testament as well.
0: Well, let's start with an overall perspective of the book. Can, can you give us that?
1: Yeah. Exodus is, um, the book begins and ends with, with a contrast, if you will. You know, it begins in Egypt. It ends in Sinai. It begins uh, with bondage and ends with freedom. Interestingly, it begins with Pharaoh being the king of, um, of Israel, in a sense, because they are serving him. Hmm. And it ends with uh, Yahweh, or the Lord, being the king, uh, because they're serving him. Now, interestingly, we read in the opening chapters that the Israelites are using their hands to serve Pharaoh. They're building the store cities of Pithom and Ramses. At the end of the book, We find that they're still using their their hands to build, but not Petham and Ramses to build a tabernacle. And so you've got this this use of hands that, that permeates the entire book. And even to the fact that God uses his hands to deliver them. The Bible says repeatedly that it is with mighty hands and an outstretched arm he delivers his people from bondage. So it begins with a problem, problem of bondage, And the solution then permeates the entire book as it reaches its solution at the very end of the book.
0: Uh, Bondage or slavery. Why did God get involved in this? Um, Obviously, bondage is a problem. Slavery is a problem. um, But is there more to it than that?
1: I think there is more to it than that. And that's what makes Exodus kind of really special and unique. Because the enslavement of, uh, of the people really... Is a reflection. It was a threat, if you like, to the lordship of Yahweh on his people. They were—you you remember the book—they were—they were growing immensely in the land of Egypt, and and the Pharaoh decided that he would—he wanted to to kind of cull the people, uh, uh, the threat of genocide, if you want. And so Israel's existence was at stake. Its very existence was at stake. And if their existence was at stake, then that was a threat to the covenant itself. And so um, God enters into the fray uh, to, to basically as the guarantor of the of the covenant. Um, and so, you know, you have this marvelous section towards the end of chapter two where he becomes aware of, of the predicament, uh, he uses the verbs that he heard, he saw, he knew the predicament of his people. Uh, that, was, that was the present tense. And then in the past tense, it says that he remembered the covenant relationship. Um, and then he looks to the future by raising up a deliverer, Moses. Moses is born. And then he encounters Moses, of course, in the burning bush and gives his name as the I am or the I was or the I will be, which is the essence of the word Yahweh, a sacred word for the Jews and a very special word for Christians today
0: not to get hung up on this idea of slavery and bondage, but um, it's one of the big things that the secular world tends to throw that in our face uh, when they talk about God and um, the existence of God and a good God and all of that. Uh, how, do you, how do you answer that?
1: I think that um, you know, slavery is, a, is an evil thing, obviously, uh, bondage. Um, but it was not unique to Israel in ancient times, I mean, it was uh, around from the beginning of the human race. Um, the evil of it, um, and and I think God stands over against that kind of uh, that that evil. Uh, the reason why He gets involved in this particular scenario is because it involves His promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, the covenant that He made with them. Because you know, at the last analysis, God's promises remain valid and truthful, uh, despite the, con- the human condition, despite the circumstances that, that surround life. Um, so in, in, in that sense, I think, you know, while we want to say, and, and indeed, we want to affirm the fact that, uh, that slavery is an abomination, um, the reality was that, uh, that it was a common practice in ancient times. And of course, still today, I mean, in, in many forms, it takes it takes many forms today. Um, the great evil that uh, that blights uh, the human race, and God stands against that. Uh, but in this in, in this particular instance, you know, there was much more um, involved uh, in 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 God entering into the fray, so to speak, uh, to redeem His people,
0: yeah. turning something from evil to good.
1: Yes. Yes, indeed.
0: Uh, so Indeed. so you talk about the great I am. Moses becomes the solution to this problem.
1: Uh, not initially, interestingly, isn't it? Um, you, you, one notices as one reads through the book that uh, chapters three and four in particular, he makes all kinds of excuses. He doesn't want to be the deliverer. Mm-hmm. Um, he can't speak. He's, uh, you know, he's got a stutter. He's, um, nobody will listen to him. He doesn't have leadership potential and all the rest of it, you know, and he questions God's will. And yet, yet when, when he reveals the fact uh, to his people, they get excited. It even tells us that they worship the God. But when he when he goes to Pharaoh, of course, it doesn't work out the way you know, because God said to Moses, "I'm choosing you to deliver the people." And Moses says, "No, you, you, I'm the wrong guy. I'm I'm the wrong I'm the wrong chap for this. You need to get someone else." And God says, "No, I'll give you Aaron to help you, but you know you're the you're you're my man." And um, you know, it's interesting in those chapters, I just I noticed again and again that the words, uh, but Moses said, is used again and again. Every time, every time God says, you know, I want you to do, but, but Moses says, you know. <laughs> and, and eventually you get to a point where, but God says, you know, you're going to do this, which is kind of fascinating. And he sends them to Pharaoh, he sends them to the people. And of course, I think Moses is delighted that they respond positively. And he goes into Pharaoh in the hope that that's going to happen again. But Pharaoh, of course, he doesn't react the same way. He doubles the task of the people, and so uh, there's a problem that's created that, that has now been exacerbated, if you will. The problem is actually compounded because uh, the people then start complaining. Moses, things were were terrible before you came, and now that you've come, they've got they've gotten a lot worse, and you know we're having to to to, to work much harder, and so you know this problem that, that rises initially at the beginning of the book, that, that of bondage, becomes much more acute. And it is precisely the question that, that Pharaoh asks that becomes a turning point in the entire book. Because you remember when, beginning of chapter 5, Moses confronts uh, Pharaoh and he says, hey, you know, Yahweh has told me to come and, and the people need to go and worship uh, this, this God. And, and Pharaoh asks the profound question, who is Yahweh that I should let the people go? And that is a turning point in the entire narrative, which is really, really fascinating, that question.
0: Well, what is it about that question that does direct the story?
1: because nobody's able to answer it (laughs) you know it's interesting isn't it when Pharaoh says who is Yahweh Moses never answers you know he's kind of unable to answer it in a sense and and he goes back to the people and the people they're not going to answer the question because you know they want Moses to hightail it out of there I mean he's made matters much worse um, so the people can't answer the question. God's people cannot answer the question. Moses can't answer the question. And yet the question requires an answer. Now, I would want to point out that the question is a deeply theological question. So this, what, was, what began as a human problem has now become a theological enigma, if you will. So there's nobody left to answer that question except god himself and so in chapter 6 you have this god promises to answer the question it's fascinating isn't it moses can't answer the question the people of god can't answer the question the only person left to answer the question is god himself and he begins he answers that question in chapters seven, eight, nine, ten, 10 and 11 by sending the 10 plagues if you will into egypt And you'll notice that Exodus actually tells us that God says, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment because I am the Lord. So these 10 plagues aren't just 10, you know, how would you say, kind of judgments on on the people, you know, I'm gonna punish you for not believing. No, the whole point of the plagues is to demonstrate where Yahweh belongs in the pantheon because let me explain that pharaoh understands the deities of egypt in, in, in the time of moses we we believe that there were 212 egyptian deities so pharaoh's question who is yahweh basically is a question where does he fit into the pantheon the egyptian uh-huh. pantheon you know hmm. we, we, so this is another god okay we can have 213 uh, gods but you tell me where he fits and so what, what happens in the 10 plagues is it, basically God is telling him where he fits. Because, you know, when the Nile is turned to blood, that affects the god Osiris and Hapi and Kunum. Uh, the frogs are represented in Egypt by Nun and Nu. The, the gnats are represented by Geb and Seb and uh, Tefnut. Uh, the flies represented by men. The cattle by Apis and Hathor. The boils by Imhotep, uh, the heel by Isis and Nut, the locusts by Seth, the darkness by Atan and Horus. And the fascinating thing is that the great god of Egypt, the highest god of all, is the god Amon-Re, the god of the firstborn, creator god, if you will. So by defeating, by killing the firstborn of Egypt, you see, God was answering Pharaoh's question. And he was saying that I am greater than... Even than the God Amon-Re, I am the greatest of all the gods. I am the only God. And so that was God's magnificent answer to this question in chapter 5, verse 2. Deeply theological question, deeply theological answer.
0: Why is this not made more plain in the word? I mean, this is a wonderful... Well, it actually is.
1: Yeah, it actually is in chapter 12, verse 12. God says, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I mean, it actually says that. I mean, we miss it because it's kind of tucked away there. But it actually states that the Lord said, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. And that's the clue to understanding why the plagues. And of course, there are only 10. I mean, there are, you, you, <laughs> there are only 10 plagues ten is the number of completion of course you know you don't want to you don't want to read 212 <laughs> plagues you know i mean exodus would be much too long at that point so the whole purpose you see of of the plagues and the whole purpose of deliverance was not to deliver the people to freedom per se but it's this to know that i am yahweh and to be able to sing the song of deliverance which comes in chapter 15
0: What do you mean by sing
1: Well you remember in chapter in chapter 15 Moses sings the song of deliverance It's an amazing thing Now the interesting thing of course is that he doesn't sing the song uh, before chapter 15 He actually doesn't sing I mean I would anticipate that he would have sang the song of deliverance in chapter 13, because in chapter 12, they actually leave Egypt. It would make sense, wouldn't it, to be singing the song as they leave Egypt. But it is not until the sea is crossed in chapter 14 that they're able to sing the song. Not until deliverance was absolutely and fully complete was Moses able to sing the song. I find that fascinating because, you know, in the book of Revelation, Ironically, also in chapter 15, it talks about the saints in glory singing the song of Moses. And they were able to sing the song of Moses, uh, John the Divine writes, which I find absolutely fascinating. Because we're not able to sing the song of Moses until our deliverance is fully and finally complete. We can't sing it yet. We think we can sing the songs of deliverance, Hmm. but we can't not the song of Moses, that will wait until we get to glory, when we're all together, and then we will be able to sing the song that Moses sang when, our, when we've crossed the, the sea, if you will. Um, the song itself, of course, is, is, is fascinating. If our listeners happen to have a Bible handy and will turn to, uh, to that chapter, it's, uh, it's truly a fascinating uh, song and And it takes the form of what we call a chiasm
0: explain what th- what that means
1: it 's kind of an inverted structure that highlights a central affirmation now let me try and explain that further if i may it's really ingenious and intriguing if the writer wants to to emphasize a point, what he does is he sets up a a pattern, if you will, a structure um, in which, you know, he will. let's say for the sake of argument, he will have seven points to make or nine points to make or 11 points to make. But the central point is the point that he wants to emphasize. And so he builds up to it and then retreats from it. Let's call each, each point, uh, if you will, in the song, just give it a letter. If I go A, B, C, D, and D is my central point, then I want to go backwards, C. B, A. So it would be A, B, C, D, C, B, A. So in other words, there'd be similarity between the two outward statements and, the, and then the next two and the next two until they build in the middle to the, to the absolute, what, they, what the writer is really wanting to say or what in this case. And, and often the clue to this is often a repeated verse. For example, in in chapter fifteen, um, uh, it opens in verse one with the words, "I will sing to the Lord." He says, and in verses twenty twenty one of the same chapter, it ends with Miriam saying, singing, "I will sing to the Lord." So there's a clue that there's two points there that are the same. There are two one is A and the other is A, if you will,
0: hmm.
1: and and the song in chapter two and uh, verses two and three the song that Moses sings is he basically says, this is what God is like. And and uh, in verses 18 and 19, um, the song says, this is what God is like. And then uh, if you go back to the beginning again, um, God delivers his people from the enemy in verses four through 10. And uh, from coming from the other end, God leads his people in the face of the enemy, 12 through 17. And so the central, fi- the central point is verse 11. There is no one like Jehovah. There is no one like Yahweh. There is no one like the Lord. So, so let me put it this way. One, Moses sings, I will sing to the Lord. Two, he says, this is what God is like. Three, God delivers his people. Four, there is no one like Yahweh. Five, God leads his people, uh, he delivers his people from the enemy. Uh, six, this is what God is like. Seven, Miriam sings, I will sing to the Lord. So you can see the inversion hmm. that it goes A, B, C, and then the central point, and then C, B, A. It, basically, it's a reflection of the central point, and the central point is the big thing to make. In other words, you know, verse 11. There is no one like Yahweh. And and, and the verse actually reads, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? So that's the very heart, you see, of, of of the Song of Moses. And everything builds to that and then retreats from that. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? So that's this kind of sense of the essence of that song. Moses is is leading up to it and then leading away from it to make this point a great emphasis. There is no one in all the world like Yahweh, which ties into the plagues, you see, where Yahweh has described himself as greater than Amun-Re, greater than all the gods of Egypt. And so the song reflects that in this very heart, it's kind of like a cabbage that you kinda of pull away, you know, until you get to the heart. And the heart of the song is verse eleven. Building up to verse eleven, retreating from verse eleven. Who is like you, O God who O Lord, among the gods? It's a great it's called a chiastic structure. And it's absolutely absolutely fabulous.
0: Fade to black, roll credits, end of book. But no, it continues. I mean, wouldn't it have been a great way to just end right there? Come it up with it really another? would, you know. In some in some, <laughs> <laughs> in some ways, it really
1: would. So why doesn't it? Um, well, remember I said at the beginning that the deliverance is a process. Uh, you have to get from Egypt to Sinai, and you get there by way of the wilderness, and there are lessons uh, that need to be learned. The, the, the Mara's bitter water and Elam's sweet water. The uh, the concern with eating manna in the wilderness, the war with Amalek—all um, these are to to learn. So you see, what we what we move from from chapter fifteen, um, we move into the second, basically major section of the book, which is represents the wilderness wanderings, which leads to the third major division of the book, which begins in chapter nineteen. Uh, it has to do with the law and the tabernacle. So these things, uh, both the wilderness wandering and the law and the tabernacle, are the consequences, the, the natural consequences of the exodus. And that's significant. You know, um, certainly we would want to say that the way out is God. But we would also want to argue that the way out Leads to God. Uh, I remember a, um, a, a hymn we used to sing when we were kids. I'm not quite sure where it came from, but but I remember there was one line in it that said that Christ, Christ is the path and Christ the price. So basically, chapters one through fifteen is the path, and chapters um, sixteen and following is the price. So what we what we do is we move from from the exodus uh, to the giving of the law, if you will. So deliverance becomes, the consequence is obedience. The privilege becomes an opportunity. The revelation becomes a human responsibility. And law then becomes a, an extension of grace. Grace is the deliverance. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. The law is an extension of grace. All too often we in the church kind of separate grace and law, and it can't be separated. Law comes, flows out of grace. It, it, is the, it is the responsible obedience to deliverance. It is the responsibility, it is, if you will, it is the opportunity to, uh, to express our devotion to God uh, that, that emerges out of the privilege of being God's people. And so law and grace are married inextricably together and uh, you know for for the book to stop at, at chapter 15 or chapter 18 wherever you want to stop it there would simply do a grave injustice to this understanding of the responsibility and opportunity and obedience that comes through the law which is an extension of the early chapters grace and deliverance.
0: That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it's first of all, law does not sound like a prize. Uh, Grace certainly does, uh, but law does not. So it's nice to hear (laughs) that. The tabernacle. um, Explain that. Well, um, the
1: tabernacle basically is also kind of uh, wrapped up in 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 the law itself. That's why I would group them together. You know, the law states in chapters nineteen through twenty four, if you will obey. One of the recurring phrases in the tabernacle is this idea of as the Lord commanded, they did everything as the Lord commanded. So it was also primarily an act of of obedience and uh, the covenant, which was once threatened um, in the early chapters, is now ratified through the law and the tabernacle and you have this amazing culmination in the book where the glory of the very presence, the Shekinah of God uh, fills the tabernacle because it has been constructed in precisely the way that God intended it uh, to be structured. So, I don't know, does that answer your question?
0: Is that to give basically a physical representation to the people? The tabernacle just feels like one. the only physical representation
1: here well I mean that's certainly true Um, but it's interesting how the the writer you know sets this up in this in the third major division of the book from chapter 19 to 40 you have basically two subdivisions the first one is the law uh, which which uh, runs from chapter 19 to 24 and then the tabernacle which which runs from 24 to the end of the book now, the covenant is ratified through the law in chapters 19 through 24. And you will remember that, uh, that Moses sprinkles the blood of the congregation as a ratification of that covenant, which again stands in marked contrast to the beginning of the book when the covenant was threatened because of the genocide planned against the people of Israel. But what you have now in this in this part between chapters 25 and 40 is also it's fascinating there is a sense that when God begins to give the uh, the pattern for worship basically what he's saying is uh, there's a tangible need so in that sense I think you're perfectly correct I mean there is this kind of tangible need for uh, as people as people worship and so God sets out his pattern for worship and and you know the, the people's need for for a sense of presence, um, uh, people's need for tangibility in, in their worship, um, uh, people's need for stewardship to give um, back to God, all those things were inherently being taken into consideration as God was in the process of meeting those needs of his people. So, chapters 25 to 31, you know, I, I know it gets a bit. Um, you know uh how would you say less than fascinating in a sense you know it's just the years this is the way the tabernacle is to be built there's going to be this many rods and the the, the curtain has to be mm-hmm. made of this material and has to be so many cubits high and so many cubits long and and then then the, then there's the, the the table of the showbread and there's the altar and and there's the candlesticks and there's the you know all this kind of stuff and the altar of incense and and yeah, it begins to get, and you think, "Whoa, am I ever going to make it through these uh, seven chapters, yeah. you know? <laughs> um, and the interesting thing is that, you know, in chapters 35 to 40, you have the whole thing repeated, you know? basically, well, this is what they did. They, they <laughs> built it this way and they used this material for the curtains and they, and it was this many cubits high and this many cubits long and there was the table of the showbread and had to be placed at a certain point and so forth and so on. And, and you think, I think I've read this before. But the fascinating thing is that when what happens is the writer has, has placed between those two things a fascinating story of the, of the golden calf um which intrigues me beyond measure. Why is that? Because well it's an interruption of course, isn't it? It's it's uh, again to use a technical term it's called an incalation uh, where the writer has has deliberately interrupted the, the the narrative and stuck in something that doesn't seem part of the narrative and yet he has done it for a specific purpose which is absolutely fascinating. Because what you have, you see, God has, God has established chapters 25 to 31, he's established the pattern for worship. It is by the way God who alone has the right to say, this is how I should be worshiped." Mm-hmm. it's not our right to say, well go go, you know okay God, but I'm going to worship you this way, which is what happens in chapters 32, 33 and 34 in this amazing story of the golden calf. What you have here is, is the people saying, you know, Moses has been gone up the mountain too long, um, maybe he's dead, uh, maybe he's not going to come back, maybe he's gone off somewhere, so we'd better, we'd better create our own gods and, and worship them the way we want to worship them, and so they built a golden calf. And one understands why they did it. Remember, we've said already there was a need for, for a sense of God's presence amongst them. There was a need for tangibility, mm-hmm. something to touch and something to see. There was a, a need for stewardship. And so they gave their gold and they built this, this golden calf. Even though God was, was making provision for it, they basically were saying, well, yeah, we understand, but we're going to worship God our way. Uh, we're going to redefine God if, if if need be. Now, I'm not sure that they were actually redefining God. And the golden calf was never meant to be God. Because in the ancient times, and, and let me try, follow me if you will with this. In ancient times, God was depicted as riding on something or standing on something. So that the, the Ark of the Covenant, for example... Uh, which eventually becomes the the, the the throne of God, never doesn't represent God per se. It represents the throne on which God would sit as king over his people. And in the same manner, the golden calf was never meant to be God per se. It was simply a, th- a kind of throne, if you will, on which Yahweh would sit. So they weren't really denying Yahweh they were denying the way Yahweh wanted to be worshipped, ah. and that's really significant and important. And and you see again, it is God who determines how He should be worshipped, not not us. And so, what you have here in the story of the golden calf stands in marked contrast to the instructions that that, uh, that Yahweh has given in in chapters twenty five to thirty one. And also in more contrast to the actual construction of the tabernacle in chapters 35 to 40, the end of the book. And that's why it's important that the end of the book reflects the instructions. The construction reflects the instruction. And eventually the people decide to do it God's way. And so again and again... in in the chapters from 35 and following, you're going to read again and again and again and again the words, as the Lord commanded. Mm -hmm. Because the golden calf was not the way the Lord commanded. And so what you have here is when when they built the golden calf, they were in fact negating their deliverance from Egypt. And there was a need for a new deliverance because God was going to, instead of Pharaoh wanting to destroy them, God was going to destroy them, you remember? And Moses stood in the breach and said, "Don't destroy them." And so there was a, a, if you like, a second exodus. Interestingly, one of the prophets in the Old Testament, in looking back on this incident, actually says that in their hearts they turned back towards Egypt. So there needed to be a second exodus. and that, sex, that second exodus took them away from the false worship of the golden calf to the true worship of the tabernacle. And when they did that, then finally, the glory of the Lord was able to dwell in their midst. And by the way, in this story of the golden calf, we have another chiastic structure. I mean, it's fascinating. From uh, chapter, all of chapter 32 into the first six chapters of 33, you have the people acting, Yahweh speaking, Moses praying, Moses going down the mountain, judgment, question for repentance, judgment, Moses going up the mountain, Moses praying, Yahweh speaking twice, and God acting, the same kind of thing that we saw before, you know from the only this time there's an A, B, C, D, e, F, if you will, and then an e D, C, b a. The question then is what is the major what is the heart of that uh, of this story that, that the writer's trying to emphasize. What is the middle point? And the middle point is found in verse 26. Who is on the Lord's side? And that you know, it's fascinating how the writer puts these things together to emphasize the central point of the entire chapter in the chapter 6 of 33. And you can see the, the chiastic structure, you know, leading up to and retracting from. And so you have this, you know, the question that lies at the very heart of the story. Who is
0: on the Lord's side? And Moses, Moses Christ, who's on the Lord's side? Let him come to me. Can you tell me about how much time passes between the first Exodus and then into the second Exodus? What kind of time frame are we looking at here?
1: Oh, that's a good question. From the actual leaving uh, of Egypt, uh, they would have had to walk to the sea, to the Red Sea, um, which would have taken them uh, a matter of weeks. And then after the crossing of the sea, they wandered uh, around extensively in the wilderness of Sinai before they actually got to the uh, to Sinai mountain.
0: And this is, no, this is no small group. This is not a little tour group.
1: Oh, my goodness, no, no, no.
0: <laughs>
1: no, this is, this is, uh, this is a million-plus people, and it's desert. You know? As you know, the Sinai Peninsula is desert, so they would move from oasis to oasis. So yes, that would have been some substantial amount of time until they came to Mount Sinai, which again is is right in the desert. I years ago I climbed what is considered to be Mount Sinai. We we're not quite sure where Mount Sinai is, but um, I climbed one of the mountains up there, and we said it was Sinai. How's that? Um, you know, I'm not sure that it actually was the Mount Sinai, but you know, in 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 the Middle East or in the Far East, when you go to uh, um to the the lands there it's it's more a question of not is this the exact spot is this is where we remember Mm. this is where we remember and that's where we remembered sinai on the top of that mountain so yeah that would have been some some substantial amount of time there would have been quite a number of weeks um uh, months
0: but it's still um, right but probably i mean be less than a year from the time when they leave Egypt. Yes it would have been. been. And then this event with the golden calf happens within the first year or so of of their exodus. Yes,
1: which is quite amazing, isn't it, really? Um, Yeah. yeah. I think Moses was gone uh, up the hill for some 40 days. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's about what's almost six weeks or thereabouts. And um, so there's a month and a half right there when he was uh, when he was up uh, on the mountain. And um, and of course they had this you know audio uh, display of God you know with you know <laughs> yeah. I mean the, the, everything you know the smoke and the earthquakes and the thunder and um, impinging upon every conceivable human sense uh, fully demanding their attention. Um, so you know they experienced God as recently as a month and a half before this uh, in this great. Display of God's power and his presence on Mount Sinai. And Moses, you know, I love the fact that Moses, uh, the writer says, Moses went into the darkness where God was.
0: Hmm.
1: Which, by the way, is interesting because New Testament writer says God is light and in him there is no darkness whatsoever.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But, you know, but I, I remember one Scottish preacher pointing out uh, that uh, there are darknesses in which God dwells. The darkness of sin, he comes and he saves. The darkness of death where he meets us and carries us across uh, uh, to glory. Um, the darkness of history, um, the darkness of, uh, of, of circumstances. You know, we're currently going through the darkness of, uh, of this uh, virus that is bringing the world to its uh, knees. Um, Moses went into the darkness where God was. So there are dark places where God is can be found. And I think that's absolutely beautiful. I've lost sight of your question. Did, did I no, answer? Just, I was trying
0: to figure out the uh, approximate amount of time, uh, because obviously they end up wandering through the desert for 40 years, which is yeah, which a crazy means, amount yeah, of time. That's, that's later. That's but, numbers. But that's the I, book of numbers. Yes. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Right. Yes. But but I'm just thinking they they have this uh, golden calf event, and they, they're they not even gone a year yes. when they have it. I mean, how that is that seems preposterous. Their memories <laughs> are... Institutional does. memory doesn't last it, even a year it
1: does it does, but you know it seems to me that 's the story of the human race mm. I mean we too easily forget i mean and and not only was it less than a year, but as i 've said you know i mean this this great display of god 's presence and majesty and glory on Mount Sinai was was six weeks, and they're yeah. they 're building a golden calf in less than six weeks but um, you know it's uh they were impatient they were um, they were at heart uh, rebellious, um, uh, unappreciative, um, you know, just, just like us today.
0: I was going to say, it doesn't sound familiar at all. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. What have you done for me lately, uh, right? Isn't that what we constantly seem yes, to be saying? Yes, that's um, exactly right. You mentioned that there are two Exodus events in Exodus. You would think that they would have figured out they've been saved, they've been rescued after the first one, but they don't really figure it out until the second. What was that key moment for them?
1: I would suggest that the trigger, if there was a trigger, was the confrontation with Moses um, when he came down the mountain. When Moses was up the mountain for six weeks, the people gathered together to Aaron and her, and they said, up, oh, make us gods who brought us up out of the land of egypt now i mean it's an understandable request but the interesting thing is that from then on you never read of her he vanishes from the from the narrative and and my suspicion my strong suspicion is that her said no and they killed him and aaron said what is it you want because the interesting thing is when moses comes down the mountain Aaron actually says to Moses, because Moses says, what have you done? And Aaron said, the people gave me their gold and I threw it into this pot and out came this golden calf. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's what he said. So he wouldn't take responsibility for it. And I think, you know, when, when then, when he destroys the calf, he burns it, he melts it, and he scatters it. Those are the three verbs that are used. Well, you see, you can't burn, melt, and scatter any particular solid object. You can burn it. You can burn wood. You can melt gold. And then, you know, how do you scatter? I mean, they're all mutually exclusive. And so that's why scholars for 2,000 years have argued with each other about, you know, how the thing, was it, was it, it must have been part wood, part gold. But the actual clue is found in ancient Near Eastern literature. In the story, uh, the Canaanite myth of Baal. Baal lived in his palace. And he was married to Anat, the goddess. And Mot was the god of death. And Mot was trying to get into the palace to kill Baal. So Anat left on a shopping expedition or some such. She left and she said to Baal before she left, now keep the doors closed and the windows closed because Moat is trying to kill you. And so she left and Baal left one of the windows open. Moat crawled through the window, grabbed Baal, carried him to the nether world. Hey? And when Anat came back from her shopping expedition or wherever she was, Baal was gone. So she inquired to discover that Mote had taken him to the netherworld. And so she set out in search of her husband. And when she got into the netherworld, she, she found Mote, the god of death. And she fought him. And the ancient verbs that are used is she burned him, she ground him, sorry, melted him. And she scattered him, and the birds of the air ate the proceeds. So the ancient myth is basically a way of saying she utterly destroyed him. That's what, that's what those three verbs basically are saying. So it's exactly the same three verbs that are used in the story of the golden calf. So it doesn't matter what the it doesn't say anything about the constitution of the calf. It's simply an idiomatic way of saying that the golden calf was completely annihilated and the people and Moses scatters it on the on the water and the people are made to drink it so that it actually becomes excrement Uh, to get back to your question I I think when Moses destroyed the calf scattered it on the ground and the people had to drink it and and the God was going to destroy them again and so there was a need for another Exodus event I think that was the that was the turning point and that was the thing that they, had, they, they brought them to their senses. And they said, okay, we've got to do this God's way.
0: All right. So, so Alan, let's talk about the climax. Are there other lessons to be learned from these final chapters?
1: Um, I, I think there are. I mean, uh, the, the tabernacle, while it seems so um, uneventful, you know, the, the length of this, that, and the other, this has to be made of gold, and this has to be made of this, and... And, and what have you, I mean, it, and then the repetition of it all, you know, you think, what on earth? But, but here are some things that I think are very important to take away. Um, I would ask, first of all, who participated in the, in the building of the tabernacle? And how were they motivated? And, and first of all, um, you know, one would need to recognize that there was universal participation. Everyone participated. Everyone. It wasn't just for some people, some of the people of God, it was the entirety of the people of God. From the richest to the poorest, from the wisest to the the most unwise. Um, And then you'll notice that the the participation was voluntary. It was not mandated. They all wanted to do this. And it was a spiritual participation. It was a God-motivated participation. And I asked myself, why ultimately did they do that? And I think ultimately it was because they realized they had been delivered. And I think that's very special. You know, if, if we really understood that we've been delivered, what a lesson there is there in terms of participation in the spread of the gospel. And then you ask, you know, what, what did they contribute? Well, you notice they contributed material things. Uh, they contributed their gold. They took off their rings, their earrings. Um, they contributed uh, uh, wood. Uh, they contributed um, uh, animals, skins, and all kinds of stuff. And and not only did they did they contribute material things, but they contributed their skills and their talents, because both are needed in the in the ongoing uh, adventure that we call the Church of Jesus Christ, the, the spread of the gospel. There's a need for material things, for, for money to resource uh, the mission and of the church, and the talent and skills to help further the gospel. And then what were the specifications that were used? Well, simply, as I've pointed out, as the Lord commanded, we need to do it God's way, not our way. But always asking, what is God? What is it that you want? And the purpose was to worship, to seek guidance, and to know his provision. But the fascinating things, uh, you know, w- what were the results of all this? Two things, I would say. Um, one, is, one has always fascinated me, uh, and it's this, that Moses actually had to tell the people to stop giving. They were giving too much. Now, can you imagine any minister of the gospel no. going out in this <laughs> congregation on a Sunday and saying, stewardship season, we've got to cut it short because you're giving too much. <laughs> You've got to stop giving. I remember an old professor of mine years and years ago, he said something to the effect of, you know, you'll never have a financial crisis in the church if people understand their salvation. If they really understand what God has done for them, if they really understand and appreciate their deliverance from sin, you will never have a financial problem. I believe that with all my heart. And then the second thing i would say of course is the glory of the lord fail the great climax of the book and so the curtain comes down on the on the on the presence of god filling the tabernacle emmanuel god is with his people this is a great book i love this book yes i do have a special interest in it i did do my doctoral thesis on it Uh, yes it's it's always been very special to me i love it dearly it has so many lessons to teach us and I hope it does for all our listeners as well.
0: Well, thank you, Alan. Uh, another wonderful exposition of the Word of God. Uh, our walk through the Pentateuch continues next time with a dive into Leviticus.
1: <laughs> yes, people, most people don't think that's the most exciting book in the Bible, but you know, it is really extraordinary. And I'd like to point out in what way it really is and worthwhile a serious look.
0: Great. Well, please join us for the continuation of the series and reach out to us with your thoughts, comments, and questions either on our Facebook page or directly via email at podcast at the wordisout.com. Thank you for listening. We'll be back with our next podcast soon.